My name's Simon. I am one of the pastors here at the church. If you're new, welcome. Glad to have you join us. We have been working through our study in the book of Psalms. We have two more. We have this week and next week. And then we launch back into our study in the book of Acts. Maybe you're like, hey, we started Acts. Hey, where's the book of Acts? It's coming back. It'll be here. And with that, I want to tell you, we have a little treat for you. Some of you really liked when we had the little booklets that we did, like the study, like the ESV Bibles with the notes. You guys got the journals? You like those? We bought them for Acts. So they'll be in the back next week. You can continue writing your notes in the ESV journals that we got for you. Please feel free to take those. Those will be out next week to load you up for that following week. So as we're going through the book of Psalms, we need to understand kind of a key figure that exists in the book of Psalms. His name is King David. So King David's important for a lot of reasons. Uh, a lot of what happened with the people of Israel revolves around the person of David, who we have in our Messiah, and where he comes from is from the line of David as well. But we also need to understand that 73 of the Psalms have been ascribed to David. So that's almost half of the Psalms in the book of Psalms out of the 150 some odd Psalms are accredited to him. So to understand David's life will actually help us to understand the context and what we're reading when we read it. Now, David's life was crazy. Uh, if you, we're, I, I keep toying with the idea of doing a full study on the life of David and just walking through that because there's just so much and it's so intense. Like he had super high highs. Like he was this great warrior. He fought off animals. He defeated Goliath. He became the king. Uh, he saw peace in his kingdom. He led and people followed. Like he was that guy. People loved David. He was, uh, he was a king among the people and they respected that and he fought alongside them and he was that king that they all wanted. And every king would be at that point like kind of held to that standard of who David was. But he also had really low lows. His life wasn't perfect. Uh, he was hunted down for, for many years by the, the, his predecessor king, the one that he served, the one that he vowed to do whatever he needed to do for he had to leave his very best friend in a very short amount of time that this person that he had become attached to, they were like brothers, that he had to leave that friend and never see him again and only hear about his death later down the road. He slept with his friend, one of his general's wives. And then through a chain of events, he had that guy killed. And then his son tried to overthrow his throne and, and did a pretty good job of it actually for a while. That's just to name a few things. This is David's life. This is what he existed. And so what you understand is that these psalms that we read about are linked up with these events in the life of David. And what that does is it gives us this really interesting inside perspective that we can learn from and that we can understand. We can understand how David's responding. We can understand what David's going through. We can understand how he views God, but we can see who God is and how God responds to him in these circumstances as well. And what I love about this is that when we read about David, oh, David's this great king. He's a man after God's own heart. He's amazing. He's awesome. He's fantastic. He's just like you and me. He's just an individual who lived and breathed and bled and made mistakes. And we're the same thing. And we can learn from his life as we study this. So the psalm that we're going to look at today is Psalm 27. Uh, there's some guesses at what events were going on in the life of David when this psalm was written. So there's kind of two big pockets that say this is what was going on in his life. The first one comes out of 1 Samuel 19 through 31. 
And I kind of mentioned already, Saul, the current king, was jealous of David. So David was a warrior, Saul was a warrior as well, but not as much. So we see that he would, they would come into town after a battle and say, Saul has killed his thousands. But then they would say, David has killed his tens of thousands. He's like, wait, he's, he's better than me. And there became this jealousy that grew inside of Saul that he was going to take over, that the people liked him more, and he started to go a little crazy. And he's like, I got to figure out how to not let this kid take over my kingdom because the people love him. And so we see on two different accounts as David is in, in the throne room playing music, trying to make sure that Saul is in a good spot, says, I'm going to chuck a spear at this guy and pin him to the wall. Not cool. And then it happens again. And then he has to go on the run. And what we see is that David, for somewhere between seven and eight years, was being chased down and hunted by the king that he vowed to serve. Difficult situation. Not so great. The other place that they think it might be linked to, this psalm and when it was written, was in 2 Samuel 15 through 19 which would be when his son Absalom conspired against him and tried to overthrow his kingdom by force. And so again, David flees. Now, why is this harder? Uh, it's your kid. Not cool, once again. But we see that it's a very challenging time in his life. You can pick either one, and it doesn't really change a whole lot, right? It's a hard circumstance. It's not good. It's not beneficial. We would look at it and say, that's not, that's not a good, good place to be. But yet, this is where we find David writing in this moment the psalm that we're going to read about. So what I want to do is I want to read Psalm 27. It's 14 verses. It's going to be up on the screen. You can follow along. You can just listen to me if you want. You can use your app, whatever device you have. Or if you don't have a Bible and you need one, underneath the seats, they're kind of spread out. There's brand new ESV Bibles. If you don't have one, grab one, take one, keep it. If not, there's some in the back as well. Let's read. Says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. Oh, God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O oh Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray as we dive into this. Jesus, thank you for this section of scriptures. I've just kind of been wrestling through it and marinating in this, uh, this passage all week. How you have shown me so much, Lord, as we, as we realize what it means to have hope in difficult circumstances. That you would show us that. That you would show us how David was able to have hope when things seemed hopeless. Lord, if there's things that I have written down that aren't going to benefit the moving forward of your son's name and glory, then please take them away from me. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and our eyes to truth, that if we need to be convicted of an area in our life, that you would convict us, where we need to be encouraged, you would encourage us, and that we would see the hope that we have in your son. I pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So with now knowing that David is in a difficult situation... It kind of changes the tone of this passage, doesn't it? So he starts and he launches in by saying that God is my light, he's my salvation, and he's my shelter. From a world's perspective, it probably doesn't look that way, does it? You're like, you're being hunted down by someone. You're living in caves. You don't have food. You probably aren't, you haven't showered in a long time. And it would seem that you're probably in a dark place. It would probably seem that there's no salvation, that you're actually not safe, or that you don't have any shelter, but you're highly exposed to the dangers of this world. And that's what it would feel like, but don't, don't we do that too, but when things are going well in our life? Oh, God, you're so good. Everything's going the way it should be. Life is happy. I, I have a good job. I have the spouse. I have the kids. I have the job. I have the thing. Hashtag blessed. Like, everything's so good. God, you're so good. But yet, when things go poorly, what do we say? Oh, God, why would you do this to me? Where are you? Why aren't you present right now? Oh, this is the worst. Have you forgotten me, Lord? See, like, we do this all the time, but yet we walk into this, and it's like all backwards, because David's saying the exact opposite of, I think, what most of us would say in these moments. Now, I was watching a mini documentary, it was about 10 minutes long, on uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Maybe you know that name, maybe you don't. Um, more or less, she was a, a young, uh, athletic, Christian woman, 17 years old, uh, had her whole life in front of her, grew up in a great Christian family, served in her church, and through a freak diving accident when she was out with some of her friends, she became a paraplegic and she became paralyzed. And couldn't walk, couldn't use her hands. She could like move her arms, like her shoulders a little bit, but no use of the hands. And she's all there. Now, she would say that she was refined during this time in her life, through this difficult circumstance, that her, it changed her whole outlook on God, her whole outlook on life. And she's, she's quoted by saying this in that documentary. Suffering will teach you who you are. It's a textbook that will show you the stuff of which you are made. And sometimes it's not very pretty. Suffering will squeeze that out of you. We say we know Christ. The next time you suffer hard, find out what comes out of your mouth. That will show how much you know Jesus. And in that sense, it's good. What is she saying after four decades of being a paraplegic, that when the challenges of life come 
and they press on you and they strip you down to who you are. How you respond tells the world and yourself about what you believe in Jesus and where your hope truly is. I talk to people all the time and they'll, they're like, oh, I did this thing, but I, I just, I can't believe I did that. Or I can't believe I said this thing. Where did that come from? And I'm like, well, it's really easy. Well, where? It came out of your heart. That's who you are. Like when you are pressed with pressures in life, you can't keep the mask on. You can't keep the facade on. You can't keep pretending to be that person. It is going to ooze out of, out of you who you really are. And that's what she's saying. What you believe about Jesus will ooze out of you when the pressure is applied to your life, good or bad. Maybe you need to pause this morning. And maybe today is like God had you come here to hear one thing. And the, and the question is this, how do you respond when life is difficult? What do you say? What do you think? What do you do? How do you treat people? I'll tell you what, this is like super convicting for me this week. Just some things, some pressures happened this week, and I'm just like, and I'm like, I got stuff to do in my heart. There's still stuff that's broken in my heart that I have to work on, that I need to surrender to Christ in those areas. Why am I getting frustrated? Why do I think I'm in control? Why do I think that I got to be the one to do all that? I can't, and I shouldn't. Maybe you need to ask those questions. And I can't answer them for you, but you can because you know. Maybe you need to talk to a friend or a spouse or a loved one and say, hey, how do I respond when things are hard? And then just lovingly keep your mouth shut and listen. Because if they love you well, they'll lovingly tell you the truth of how you're responding. But we see with David is that he understands that, that life circumstances don't change his love for God. And it doesn't change God's faithfulness. As a matter of fact, he see that he runs more to him in those times which is actually interesting. If you continue that, that, if I continue that little documentary about Johnny Erickson Tata, she said that if she could be completely healed, if they found a way to heal her, fully had all control of all of her limbs, but yet it cost her her deep love and understanding and knowledge and relationship with God, she said she'd never change it, not even for a second. That's how close she was to God. That's how important God is to her. She would say that God is so sweet. And so wonderful because she's experienced a God that has cared for her and protected her during difficult circumstances and has carried her when she can't carry herself. Now, David's going to lay his cards on the table. He's just going to say it. As long as I'm with God, I don't fear anything. That's a pretty big statement. I'm not sure how many of you have been hunted down by your boss at work to be killed. I'm not sure how many of your children have tried to kill you and overthrow your house. I, I don't know. Maybe you have. Um, I'm a guessing. Probably no one in here has had that happen to him. But yet David is, and he's got all these fears and problems. Uh, how am I going to live? How am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? Um, am I going to make it till tomorrow? God, how is this kingdom situation? Like, there's all these fears, but he's like, I don't fear anything. You see, he understands that there's a bigger fear than the fear that he has. See, God is bigger than the things that this world throws at. And why he's not afraid of these things in his life that honestly kind of are fearful, right? If we're honest. Because there is someone who is more terrifying than that, but yet that thing that's more terrifying is on his side, and that is God. 
that there is this God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, that controls life and death and holds it in his hand, yet that God is with him. So why would he fear? See, as he looks at what the passage would say, is that no matter what's going to happen, no matter what these people are going to do, whether it's eating his flesh, now that's not the, it's just a picture, don't, don't get weird, they're not cannibals, but it's the idea of devouring and oppressing him. Or that they are surrounding him to uh, intimidate or to control him. Being false witnesses about him and his life. That there are people that are lying about who he is, lying about what he's doing, lying about what he believes, and lying about the God that he serves. That there are those that are trying to lead him in unrighteousness. To act in a way that would not glorify the God that he loves and worships. And that even that there are those that want to do physical harm and attack him and kill him. But God's presence is bigger. God's presence is more important. And he says, the one thing, the one thing that's the most important thing that I ask of you, Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, it's an interesting way that he phrases that because the, the people that would be reading that would be the Jewish people, the Hebrews, right? So as they would hear that phrase, where do you think that their mind would go? The house of the Lord. The temple, absolutely. So they would be thinking about the temple. The temple is the place where they would go to worship God. It was a central place where God was in the Holy of Holies. Once a year they would go and they would sacrifice. It's the place where people's sins would be forgiven and that they would bring their sacrifice. They would confess their sins. There'd be a sacrifice on the altar and then they would be right with God. It was a place where you could be with God in intimacy. And that's what he says. He's not saying, I want to go live in the temple. He's saying, I want to be in God's presence. I want to be an intimate relationship with this God that we all know. I want to be right with him. And he doesn't say, I want to do it once a year. I want to do it occasionally. I want to do it here and there, maybe on the weekends. He says, I want to do this all the days of my life. See, he knows that separation from God equals death, physical death and spiritual death. He knows that. He knows that God is the one who gives life and gives it abundantly. He knows if he's not connected to God, then he would not be able to endure the situations that he's currently in. He also knows that if it wasn't for God, he wouldn't be able to get through the situations that he's already gone through to get to this point. So as he sees guys like, I have to be connected to you. If I'm separated from you, there's going to be a big problem. If you look at the life of Jesus... Um, it's interesting. He was just in relationship with the Father perfectly all the time. And what we see is that Jesus would always be like sneaking off. He, I, like, I think about Jesus, like, he was one of those like elusive individuals. He's like, I got to go spend time with God. And he just, he just splits. And then like, you're like, oh, for like five minutes? No, for like hours and hours and hours, like an entire night. At times, the disciples are like, where'd he go? Like, you ever been, have, you ever, has, has your family ever lost you because you went to go do prayer? Like, that's what Jesus, like, he's gone for so long, they can't find him, and then he shows up. He was just always wanting to be connected to the Father, always wanting to be in relationship, talking to him about every aspect of his life, everything that was going on. That's how he viewed God, and that's what he wanted. You see, there was one time that he was actually separated from God. Do you know when it was? On the cross. That's right. God left relationship with him on the cross. See, as he took that sin and put it on himself, that sin had to be punished, for the wages of sin is death. 
for the wrath of God will be poured out against all unrighteousness. And so in that moment, God separated himself from Jesus. He turned his back on him. It says so in Matthew 27, 46. You have to look it up, but he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he means is, if you break that translation down, is why have you left me? Or why have you turned your back on me? That he felt the full weight of separation from the Father. Do you know the most heartbroken and broken that Jesus ever was in this world was in that moment when he had loss of relationship with the Father? And that he did that for us so we could be in relationship with the Father? He felt the full weight of separation from the Father so we could have connectedness to the Father. And here's the thing, David, that was his biggest fear. He was afraid of that very thing, and he wouldn't know about that because that was future events, but he didn't want that. He knew that um, if, if, the, if God wasn't with him, if he didn't continue to, to love on him and keep him, that he would be in a whole heap of trouble. So he talks about what he would do in that. So it says this in verse 4 through 6, I'll read it again. It says, one thing I have asked the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent, and he will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Um, So he knows that it's God who pursues and the God who keeps him. He knows that. He's the one who chases after. Hence the reason why he says, one thing that I ask, he's asking permission that I would dwell in the house of the Lord. He's all, but I want to seek after that. I want to do everything in my power to, to be actively involved in this thing that you're doing because I want to be focused on you. I don't want to lose relationship with you. And there's four things that he actually says in those two verses. The first one is to gaze upon beauty, to gaze upon beauty. He doesn't want to take his eyes off of that which is most important. It's very similar to when we're like going someplace with a kid. If we can see our kid, they can wander off as much as they want as long as we can see them, right? If I can see you, we're okay. But if I lose sight of them, that's a problem. He's like, I don't want to lose that. Um, he, he wants to like always be focused on who God is. His beautiful mercy, his beautiful grace, his beautiful provision, his beautiful love for him, his beautiful sacrifice. He wants to be focused on that. And I was like, the word gaze, like, what's the best way to describe that word gaze? And I thought about it. I'm like, man, it's just, I don't think you get a lot of these, like, moments. Because the, the writer could have said, David could have said, to look upon the Lord, right? But gaze is a much stronger word, isn't it? And so, um, how many like going to weddings? Weddings are fun. Free cake, food. I mean, you got to give a gift, but it's pretty much free. You get to go to the wedding. It's fun. It's a celebration. It's a good time to come together, right? Now, there's this moment where the groom's up there and the pastor's up there and the best man's up there and then the bridesmaids and the groom, they all walk down the aisle and then there's that moment, right? Just before the bride comes in. Now, most people I've noticed, the, you know, the doors fling open and you know, the, the mother stands and they all stand up and they all do what? They all look at the bride, right? I don't do that. You're like, weirdo. So I actually don't look at the bride for a few minutes. You know who I look at? The groom. You know why I look at the groom? He has been waiting for this moment. 
the bride that he is going to be, the beauty of his heart, the one who's captured his soul, the one that he is so in love with, that is so endearing. And let's be honest, like your, your wedding, that's that, the most dolled up you're probably going to get. You got like an army of people making sure you look really good. And so like this is it, all that beauty in that one moment. And you think he's like, uh, so anyway, like, did you watch the game last week? Like, that's not where he's at. He's not looking at his watch. He's not like, oh, I got I to gotta tweet this cool moment. No. That man is laser focused. And that woman walks all the way. He's not, taking, he's not looking at you crying or you laughing. or you. None of that's going on. He is looking at his bride, the one that he has been waiting for. And he's like, I don't want to take my eyes off her for a second all the way up. As a matter of fact, if you watch weddings, they don't even face the pastor. They just look at each other the whole time. He's like, I, this is the moment. This is the moment I want to. This is great for forever. <laughs> like that's what's going on. That is the gaze that we speak of. That is what David is doing, that he is gazing upon the Lord, that this relation, this most special relationship that he does not want to lose, that's what he's doing in that. He says we need to make sure that we understand how beautiful God is. And if I take my eyes off, even for a second, I may miss something. I may miss it. Then it says to inquire. What is that? What are we talking about? It's really the idea of learning who God is, studying who God is. That they had the scrolls, that they had the scriptures, that they had information, they could learn about who God is. This God that we can't know enough about. He's saying that He's so good, He's so amazing, He's so loving. I want to learn everything about Him. And the more I learn about Him, the more I want to gaze upon Him, the more I want to know Him, the more I want to be in His presence. We should continue to be reaching out to understand God. We have God's word. We can understand who this God is that loves us. And the more we know, the more we love, and the more we love, the deeper in relationship will be to that God. And then it says to offer sacrifices. Um, Got to remember, David lived in a time where sins were forgiven by the sacrificial system. That you would have a sin, you'd come to the temple, you'd have whatever animal was corresponded to that sin that you had, you would then confess your sins on that animal, the priest would then take it, they would then sacrifice that animal because the wages of sin is death, right? So we know that that's where that comes from, and that's why it is, and you want to go through Leviticus, it'll give you all that information on why and how and what animals, and there's a lot there. But the reality is that as you, as you look at that, he's like, I want to be in what? Right relationship with God. I want to be in right standing with God. If there's anything that I'm doing in my life that would hinder me from being with this holy, righteous God, I want it gone. I want to remove it. I don't want it to be a part of my life. I want to confess anything that would keep me from that relationship with God. And that's what sin does. It creates boundaries in the relationship with God and the depth in which you'll go with God if you're serving something else and putting something else as a higher priority than who he is. But then it says to sing. A lot of you are like, I don't like to sing. I don't got a good voice. God's not tone deaf, but he might be because he loves to hear his kids sing. I remember singing at a camp one time, and God bless her, she was singing louder than anybody else, and it was not on key. And then someone said, we should tell her to stop. And I said, don't, don't talk to her. <laughs> Let her sing, because she was worshiping God. She was in that moment having an outward expression of what she felt inwardly. Worship is just that. Like, when you see a good movie, what do you do? You gotta see this movie. You gotta see this great movie. 
when you have a great meal at a great restaurant, you got to try this food. It was so amazing. It had this. And we had baba ganoush this week with some friends. And it had like pomegranate seeds. And like the baba ganoush was like rich and sweet at the same time. It was unbelievable. Or we just learned about this life hack or this thing or this product that makes our life easier. We want to exclaim to everyone how great it is, don't we? But what we're saying is this, that God is so great that we would sing and give adoration to him. You, you ever wonder, like, we put a lot of energy into singing here at this church, don't we? Most churches do that, that we want to proclaim who God is. Like, we just hired a worship minister because that's so important that we should be singing to God all the time and proclaiming how great he is collectively, individually, all throughout our lives. See, David's recounting all the things that God has done to this point. Those are the things that he has in God. He has this protection. He has this shelter. He doesn't have this fear. He has this confidence. He's gazing upon the beauty. He knows that he'll be protected, that, he'll, that all those things are happening. But what we see is he shifts from verses 7 to 14. It's about the future, and it's about the unknown and where he's going. It's these not-yet-possessed blessings of the Lord. And that's really where he starts to go. And he starts talking about all the, the uh, adversaries and the false witnesses and the violence and all these things that are kind of like he's sitting in right now. And then verse 10 says this really crazy thing. He says this in verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, at first glance, you're like, that's a weird passage. Like, what is he talking about? So you have to understand Middle Eastern culture is it is, it's just, it's family-centric in everything. It's like family is everything. Think of the Fast and the Furious, like it's all about family, and even more so than that, right? It's, it was like four people who got that joke. And so the reality is this, is like we have cultures that are really about family, but this society, everything depended upon family. They were there for you no matter what. They weren't going to go away. They weren't going to turn their backs on you. And what he's saying is this, even if I did something so horrific, so horrible, so vicious that even my mother and father would turn their back on me, God won't. That's crazy. It's like, no matter what, God will not turn his back on me. That's how he sees God. See, he... He's going to kind of give us like the, the nutshell at the end here, uh, 13 and 14. He says this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Everything that he has is based on the fact that he has seen God work. He has seen God protect him. So he is seeing the character and the nature of God and he's applying that to his future. And what he's really talking about is this, hope. We all have times in life where we see that there are people that are hopeless more than others. And we have this every so often where we see people are just hopeless in nature. That people don't know how to live. They don't know how to survive. They don't know what to do with themselves. We're watching um, suicide rates at, a, at, at an alarming rate that which we haven't seen in, in quite some time. That we see people don't have hope, and if they don't have hope, what's the point of living? 
And so as David is going through this extremely difficult part in his life, he's saying, I have hope based on the character and the nature and the relationship and intimacy that I have with God, which allows me to press into the situations of today that I don't understand. So the Bible would say this in Romans 8, 24 through 25 about hope. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what is sees, what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, that, that, that's, where the, that's where the power lies. He's like, I know my God. I understand my God. And because of that, I can have hope in this. David went through all this stuff. And now, here's the thing. Like, we're not, we may not have the same situations that David's going through. But we don't have to. It represents what's going on. I don't know what difficult circumstances you are going in. A lot of us, we hold those things really close to the vest, don't we? We don't want to tell people our difficult situations. We don't want to talk about where we're struggling. But I know that I talk with a lot of people in my office. And I talk, a lot, I talk with a lot of people all over the place who are going through really hard stuff. You know, it, it might be that, you know, you're like, I am just, my marriage is just falling to pieces. My marriage is just a wreck. It, it might be that, you know, the things that your kids are involved in, like, you don't know what to do at this moment. It might be the friendships that you're involved in that something's happened and you've, and you've, you've ruined a friendship or someone's ruined or done something against you and, and the friend that you have, you don't have that anymore. It may be that you're, you're going through some really heavy medical stuff right now and the doctors are like, I, there's not a lot of options here. And, and you know what? You might want to get your affairs in order. It might be that you're in a situation where your physical being has changed, but you're going to live for a long time, and you're like, I have to deal with this new reality of, of what it means to not be able to function the way that I want to function. You may have lost somebody. I've met two people this week that just lost somebody that I'm, I'm, I'm counseling and talking with and going through that with, and it's, it's horrible. And they're like, for the first time in my life, after 60 years of being married to my best friend, they're gone. I don't know what to do. I don't know your difficult situation, but I do know this, that David tells us that we can have hope, and that hope comes from an intimate relationship with the Father. That's where that comes from. That's what allows you to press through that. Now, I'm going to share more stuff about my life, and you're going to have to be okay with that. And this is a judge-free zone, so no judging here. Uh, I talk about the movies that I like all the time. I have one movie that is my all-time favorite movie of all time. Uh, you may like it, you may not. It's not really up to you because it's my favorite movie. Um, you can watch it on TBS almost every single day, no matter when it is. I took a road trip to go see the place where they filmed the movie last month because I'm that big of a nerd. The Shawshank Redemption might be the greatest movie that's ever been made of all time. Please watch the TBS version, not the uh, unedited version. The whole movie of Shawshank is based on the idea of hope. Now, I want to say that I'm not going to spoil it, but if you haven't watched it, it came out in 94. Like, you really should have watched it at this point. And so I don't feel bad about talking about what's happened in the movie. But Andy gets falsely accused. He goes to jail over something that he didn't do. He endures all sorts of hardship and suffering in this prison. Things by all these different individuals are taking advantage of him, are oppressing him, are making his life miserable. 
And he's always kind of like has this way about him. And there's this moment where he, uh, he defies the warden and he ends up in the hole for like a number of weeks. And he gets out and they're like, hey, how was the hole? It's the like, easiest time I ever did. He's like, no such thing as easy time in the hole. He's like, well, I brought Mr. Mozart with me. And, and then his, his good friend Red is like, what, what, what are you talking about? He's like, haven't you ever felt that way about something? There's a place that we have that the world can't attack us, that the world can't lock up, that's not behind bars and stone, that's free. And Red looks at him and he's just like, listen, my friend, hope is a dangerous thing and it'll cause a man to go insane. And then that causes a little bit of a tension and riff in their relationship. And then through a chain of events, we find that uh, Andy ends up leaving the prison and Red's good friend, he doesn't have any more. He's just sad. He's down. He's been institutionalized at that point. And Red ends up getting out a parole after, you know, however many decades he had been in jail and he gets out. He doesn't know how to function on the outside and he doesn't know how to live life anymore because his life is all upside down. And he's in a moment of hopelessness. But then he gets a letter from Andy and the letter says this. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? Anyone? Say Wantaneo. That's right. I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. I'll be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. And what we find is that there's a change in the heart of Red. As he was hopeless, there's a change in the arc of his story. And Red decides that he's going to keep a promise and go visit his friend. And the last lines of the entire movie are this. It's the completion of the the, the story arc of the character of Red. And he says... I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. See, how can we trust God? Like, we're not David. There's no temple. There's no sacrificial system. Like, where do we get our hope from? Our hope comes from Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. I'm going to read a passage. It was supposed to be one verse, and I kept reading, and it kept getting better and better and better. And I'm like, I have to say the whole thing because it's just so good. First Peter in 3 uh, through 9 is what I'm going to read uh, this morning because I think it encapsulates exactly what we're talking about when it comes to hope and who Jesus is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith and for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. We have a living hope, not a dead hope, not a thing that doesn't exist, but there is a living hope that has conquered sin, that has conquered death. And so for us, as David was writing this in Psalm 27, we can now live out this very idea that now that we gaze upon Jesus Christ, the beauty of the gospel incarnate, of the Lord incarnate, that we can now gaze upon him and his great beauty and love and mercy and sacrifice, that we keep our eyes fixed on him. You ever wonder that we're always talking about Jesus here? That ain't changing. That ain't changing. We're always looking towards Jesus as the Savior of everything in our life. That we learn about Jesus, that we learn about the man who died for us, the, the God-man who came, who lived, who spoke, who walked, who touched, who engaged, who understands everything that we've been through. I want to learn about him all the time. That he became our sacrifice, making us righteous with God. We don't have to go and take sacrifices to the temple because his sacrifice was sufficient past, present, future for eternity. And that we sing praises to Jesus constantly, all the time, because as you understand what he has saved you from, it wells up into worship and praise and song that we can't contain in our own bosom. See, if we understand this great love and mercy, we can't help but be focused on him. We can't help but not be afraid of the circumstances that come in this life because what we can see is this. If he has taken care of the biggest problem in my life, which is sin, which keeps me from God, why would I be afraid if any little thing comes into my life that could be a hindrance to my comfort? You see what I'm saying? Like He's already done the biggest thing. And if he's already done the biggest thing, I don't have to worry about the little things. I don't sweat the small stuff anymore. Because this is momentary. This is not eternity. This is just a blip on the screen. See, we can embody Psalm 27 through Jesus Christ. We can be strong. We can be full of courage in difficult situations because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You want to know how to get through life with courage and joy and strength? It's placing your life in someone stronger that can endure it, and it's not us. It's Jesus. See, Andy gave his hope to Red. David is giving us hope today, and we can take the same hope of Jesus Christ to the world around us and show them who he truly is. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that we have a hope, a living hope, a real hope, a hope that does not fade that can endure all things, that endures death, that conquered sin, and that these momentary afflictions, as they're called, are nothing compared to the glory of standing in your presence someday. Lord, for those who are going through difficult situations, I ask that they would place their hope in you, 
knowing that you have taken care of the biggest problem, which is our separation from the Father. Lord, for those who are hopeless in this day, in this world right now, I ask that you would let them see that there is hope through your Son, that if they confess your Son as, as Lord and Savior, that they too will be saved and have a hope that allows them to live and walk through life the same way that David did. We love you. We pray this in your glorious name. Amen. Thank you.